This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Now recording this session. Uh, my name is Rory O'Connell, uh, not Maria Prince, as it appears on your screen. Um, and I am in the Transitional Justice Institute and School of Law at Ulster University, uh, one of the organizers of a seminar on deliberating constitutional futures, along with my colleague, Elish Rooney, um, that took place on the 18th of February uh, of this year. Uh, and we'll say a bit more about that workshop and the report from it. Uh, later, uh, but we wanted to start uh, with some very uh, distinguished guests, um, Avila Kamari, Andrew Murphy, and Alex Payne, uh, talk about some of the issues raised in our report and to uh, discuss, their, look at the debate around the border poll. Um, Avila Kamari is with the Social Change Initiative and has many years of experience in philanthropy and community work. Um, Andre Murphy and Alex Kane are two extremely prominent uh, local commentators um, who are engaged in many public debates. Um, we're really delighted uh, that they are in a position to join us this morning. If you do have any Thing you want to comment on during the course of the morning, uh, please do use the chat function. Uh, but now I'm going to hand you over to Avila to start the first half of our session. Thank you very much, Rory, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You never know where people are with, with Zoom these days. Uh, thank you for joining us, um, and I'm delighted um, to broaden our discussion. Um, and um, I, ha I have a couple of questions to put to them that I've drawn out of the report, and I would encourage you to read the report, uh, Delib Deliberating Constitutional Futures. It's, uh, it throws up uh, a lot of material. We won't have time this morning to, to go through it all, but hopefully we can, um, you can come back you know, with, with, with comments and questions. And as Rory says, there is the, there is the chat function there as well um, for your comments. is related to referenda generally is that on the one hand referendums can be seen as the, the purest form of democracy direct democracy on the other hand and you know brexit comes to mind uh, you can be talking about the sort of the, the tyranny of majoritarianism the 50 percent uh, plus one syndrome so i'd like to ask perhaps andre first and, and then alex um what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of of a referendum on the constitutional future, futures in this island, and what are the risks and the opportunities? Andre. Oh, thanks, Avla, and thanks everyone for um, asking me to be part of this conversation. And um, I got a, I was lucky enough to be given a pre-look at the report from Ailish, and it's absolutely brilliant. And I just want to commend you on um, a really important report in terms of raising all of the different issues that are kind of glanced over in many conversations, but not really. In terms of your question, Avla, I suppose um, it's a, 
the report is useful in this as well to tease out a little bit of that kind of 50 plus one idea because to date when this is raised the conversation usually goes along the lines of well you know if 50 plus one is okay to maintain the union then 50 plus one must be okay to end the union with Britain and form a new Ireland and I suppose expanding that conversation a bit will Since partition, I suppose we've lived with the tyranny of majority, if we want to call it something like that. You know, a pro-union majority was deliberately created. Objections were repressed, often violently, during the, the past 100 years. So we know what unhealthy majoritarianism can look like. So, you know, if we're going to have a new Ireland or um, a referendum where, you know, whichever way the cookie falls, it, it'll probably be slim. We have to make sure that to have a different experience to what has gone before. And I think that that's the real, um, the real challenge, but also the real opportunity of this conversation for us to recognize that what went in the past hasn't worked, but what can come in the future as part of, as a result of this conversation, even without a result of the referendum can be really important. And I suppose what we have to ensure is that if, for instance, and I'm an, an overt nationalist, if, if we were successful in having um, a, a new form of Ireland, a, a united Ireland of a type, that um, the identity of a unionist minority on the island doesn't disappear. And it must be afforded a dignity, I think, that was never afforded to Irish citizens in the northern state. It needs to be a completely different experience. And that's the real opportunity, I think. How do we build a new Ireland where everyone is cherished equally? And I think that the debate over the past three years has seen this grow and there's a real and deliberate intent in many of the conversations to ensure that unionism does not feel uh, disempowered in any way. And I suppose most people will say that if 50 plus one is the rule and it is, that's not the ideal scenario. We want to have a situation where any change is at least engaged with and um, people are in, engaged in planning. And I think that Peter Robinson was really interesting in how he has framed his interventions around on that. Thanks very much. Alex, what's your opinion? To join you this morning, I've spent most of lockdown in my home, so it's actually nice to be invited in virtual form almost anywhere to, to speak to me. <laughs> so, um, hello. Um, I think it, the whole thing about the the border poll, the referendum, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot because um, it's almost 50 years since uh, the Conservative Prime Minister, Edward Heath, I think it was in November 1971, uh, made a speech which really spoke unionist at the time when basically said, if there comes a point when it looks like there may be a majority for United Ireland, we will accommodate it. As long as it's done by democratic means, a British government will accommodate. Somehow, I think with unionism, and I think all of us, all both sides have known for a very long time that this moment was always going to come. It wasn't just demographics, all sorts of other political things come into play as well, but there was going to come a point when we were asked to make a choice about you know, what the identity is. Now, I understand this 50% plus one, Oddly enough, part of me doesn't really mind so much about that because in terms of Brexit, four, five, six, seven years later ago, well, like that was okay for that, but it's not okay for this. But one thing is clear that, uh, you know, a majority, either 50% plus one 
for to stay in the United Kingdom or 50% plus one to go into United Ireland, whatever, however, you know, form that would manifest itself. That's going to be enormously difficult to pull off you because it's too tight there. I would like to see a larger margin one way or the other, but I don't know how you write that in. But I think the other thing that's really important, we certainly learned it from Brexit and, uh, and lessons learned from Now, it, it's quite clear, if you look at civic nationalism, you know, the, the 32 movement, the big movement, uh, the big meeting that was held in the Waterfront Hall two or three years ago, there's quite clearly something happening on the ground there. I've seen a lot of documents. I think Sinn Féin have another document coming out this Friday. There is something going on within nationalism, within republicanism. There's a very clear sense. Maybe I over-egg it to say they think it's inevitable. I don't think anything's inevitable, but certainly, you know, their tails are up in a way they haven't been for many, many years. My worry would in this sense of awkward, which was what made Peter Robinson's comments in, the, in his newsletter column a couple of weeks ago so important and I think he said it two years ago as well to uh, when his, his first um, lecture as peace professor and so on he said you know unionism needs to think about border polls it needs to think about the future it needs to think about how it promotes its values and its beliefs and so on and you know some of the, you can see behind me, you know, the, the, this is my Sherlock Holmes collection. And you will, there is nothing as instructive as the observation of trifles. Uh, one of my jobs, I always think, as a commentator is to look for the little things that are happening, the little moments, the little, start piling the evidence together, because when you get the evidence together, then only certain conclusions become almost inevitable. And as a unionist, my view would be, just actually as an observer, forget the unionism thing and that, I think uh, without saying it's inevitable, a border poll is now far more likely than it's ever been before. And unionism needs to start on that basis. Even if we doesn't expect one, even if it could be five, ten years down the line, it must, like Robinson said, unionism must go along on the basis that there will be a border poll do not be caught on the hop. That's what happened with Brexit at the time. And that's what we've seen in the aftermath of Brexit. People hadn't, neither side, to be honest, neither side, because Cameron hadn't prepared to lose and the Leave people hadn't prepared to win. That must not happen again. But the other thing which seemed to be ready, it's clear that unionism isn't and needs to work. It won't be taken seriously as a debate, I suspect, until we know what the input from the British and Irish government is going to be. So the Irish government say, look, it's up to you, make up your own mind. And the British government says, you know, if they, both those governments are involved big time, making statements, setting out plans, and this is what happens if, if you stay in the United Kingdom, this is what happens if you lose the unionists, lose the vote. That becomes a big major debate which people will listen to. If both those governments take the view, you know, a watching brief, it's not our job. You know, we are not going to take sides because if an Irish and British government do not take sides in this debate, it becomes a totally different debate. Sure. And ju just following your, your Sherlock Holmes um, um, reference. I can talk about him all day. <laughs> well, you know, the Belfast Agreement, you know, gives the power to the Secretary of State to decide when, when this should be held um, and whether a referendum will be held. I mean, for the unionist population, is that a bit like... And as we've had the, the Hounds of the Baskervilles and his spawn at the back door for 70, 80, 100 years, you know, because it's one thing as a unionist. I mean, I'm comfortable, I'm confident in my unionism. I, I know what I believe in. 
I think as a, as a as a political force, I think unionism it, it always sees the worst. It always assumes that everyone is against it, and sometimes it becomes this inevitable thing that if you keep portraying everyone as your enemy, suddenly everyone has become your enemy. But in terms of of the the the, the board. It isn't just unionists, you know, who don't quite understand. It's the same with nationalists because it, it's very vague. We're told, you know, the Secretary of State, um, if he thinks that there might be a majority of United Ireland, he will call a border poll. But we've no idea what the evidence is going to use. So at the minute, just for the sake of argument, there is not a majority um, of unionism in the Assembly. There isn't a majority of unionist MPs going to Westminster. If you add up the 462 local councillors in Northern Unionism, by, and I'm defining those who use of counters, a slim minority. So somebody could argue, hang on, these guys are not winning elections. These guys are not forming a majority in the following institutions. Is that not an argument, Secretary of State, to have a border poll? And so on. Yeah. So I think we should just assume it goes back to Robinson's point. Since we don't know what the evidence that the Secretary of State will use, and I, he will need input. The sec no Secretary of State is going to call a border poll just on the, you know, the British Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. it, the Irish need an input and so on. But again, I, I can understand. I think Sammy Wilson asked the Secretary of Banton Lewis two or three weeks ago in the House of Commons, asked him a question on the, what, is the, how, what, what are the terms and conditions for uh, calling this border poll. And the Secretary of State gave a, a, a wonderfully vague answer, you know, and he tremendously proud of himself. But again, it left us all in exactly the same mess. None of us, unionism doesn't know, <laughs> nationalism doesn't know, neither government. There just comes a point that worries me in all these things. Too often when it comes to dealing with Northern Ireland, a decision is made without any... We now have a board of people. Andre, just picking up on that, you know, I mean, where do you feel that those are Michal Martin's, you know, shared island initiative? Uh, what, 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 what sort of framing does that give to the sort of the idea of, of a border pool or not? I suppose um, for many people looking at the shared island unit, it looked like it was a recognition of the debate that has undoubtedly been happening since the Brexit vote. So you had the Brexit vote and then you had the collapse of the around Irish identity, Irish cultural expression, all of those issues, and the lack of capacity perceived by many of the Northern Executive or Strand One of the Good Friday Agreement to be able to deliver for, um, on, on Irish citizenship rights or Irish cultural rights. So those things came together and collided and created a real sense of, well, the Good Friday Agreement's under threat. The majority of people um, in the North voted to remain in the EU majority of people in England and Wales, you, you have this um, lack of, uh, of delivery on the rights agenda and particularly Irish citizenship and cultural rights. And so that all collided to create this environment whereby people start looking at the constitutional question in a whole different way to sit probably since the Good Friday Agreement was signed. So in the context of that, Dublin has been three steps behind. They've been absolutely up there in terms of Brexit, but we can see that it's very much from a Dublin espousing the Good Friday Agreement far more than the rights of people across the border who have an Irish identity. And then the demand, as the demand on the constitutional question grows, Dublin is found really being very resistant. 
um, and talking about things like a big whole conversation being divisive and things like that. But in comes sideways their, their general election and they realise, no, this is actually an issue. And so they make some sort of commitment to some sort of shared island. Much like the cross-border kind of commitments that were already there in the NDNA or have been kind of long-standing anyway. But there's, a nod, there's definitely a nod toward the constitutional question in that. But what it doesn't do is let us do exactly what Alex is talking about. It isn't allowing us to plan um, for what the poll will even ask. It doesn't say, well, what are the different permutations of what um, a changed island and changed economic structure, what would that look like? Um, uh, you know, relationships with London or with, uh, and, um, with British identity post um, a, a poll. So there are things that are absolutely missing. But to me, that's kind of like a gallop that, you know, just because you miss a step, the race still goes on. And those things will happen anyway. But you really think that Micheál Martin, and particularly because being a full Republican family would be, a Republican party would be far more engaged. And I would say this, that if there's a Hound of Basterville, there's also one for nationalism because, you know, they're looking and saying that the power is vested in a Secretary of State. And really in recent years, absolutely recognise that the Secretary of State and London aren't acting as neutral arbiters in any way, shape or form, and they will only do what's in London's interest rather than the interests of even the Unionist people, let alone the entire population living in the North. So there is something that um, needs to, uh, that is the responsibility of Dublin in particular, They are doing to plan for that provision in the Good Friday Agreement and to make it far more specific because we can't go on like this and it's untenable for a Secretary of State to be quite so vague and to um, just push everyone away whenever it suits them. Mm -hmm. And I want to change tack slightly because um, Rory in the report talks about that we need to know the basic rules on the referenda you know, well in advance. Um, and there's quite a lot of reference to alternate or supplementary approaches, you know, about deepening democracy, if you like. Um, I think the term is used thick democracy, which I don't like, <laughs> but deepened democracy. Um, you know, mechanisms like citizens' assemblies, the role they could play, the, the feminist conversation project. I wonder, you know, what, what, what's your feeling about those sort of approaches? Would they be useful or would they simply create more confusion? Alex? Uh, well, I think the, the niche of every referendum, and we've seen it, you know, whether one, they threw up the most extraordinary kind of alliances. You know, groups of people who you would think would never in any normal circumstance work together to, in common cause find themselves doing that. And I think when you're talking about this isn't, I don't want to belittle it, but our or over egg it, but what we're talking about, a, a referendum in the United Ireland, which in essence is what it would be, you're talking about the thing that matters most to everyone, scratch every other you know, surface of their identity card, and it's the identity, it's who they are, it's who they feel themselves. And I think that's why this will be, an when it comes or if it comes, it'll be an extraordinary debate because every single person across you know, the 32 counties, Ireland, the two jurisdictions, however we're gonna describe it, every single person will be affected if the vote goes towards ending the union, you know? So 
across all sorts of places in Ireland, people who haven't raised the voices in this issue for maybe you know 100 years, 50, whatever it is, will suddenly begin to say, do we really want a million or so, you know, unionists who are not happy? You know, do we, how do we accommodate them? How do we, you know, assure them of their Britishness? Because somebody would say, look, well, we, we, we will accommodate them. Uh, you know, the they response from a unionist would be that even, even if unionism had been a lot more generous than it should have been, a lot more open-handed than it should have been, it's still probable that the vast majority of people from a nationalist background would still have wanted the flame once again, you know, a nation once again. They would have still, that would have been their ultimate identity. And even though they mightn't have fallen out with unionism, quite like the British connection, quite like the unions, there was still that sense, we still want to live in the United Ireland. So if you're suddenly pushing a million unionists and saying, you know, oh, well, you can still feel like you're British and you can still wave a flag now and again if you want to and you can still have an orange parade if you want to. That's enough. That's like the stickers on the bicycle. You know, that real sense of your identity. And your state. the other thing, you look at the referendum on Scottish independence or even Welsh independence. doesn't matter what the result is. Scotland votes to leave. Scotland... Wales votes to leave. It's still Scotland. Northern Ireland, we vote, we lose. Northern Ireland disappears as a state. The union's identity disappears as a state. Their membership of another country disappears as a state. So all this thing about, you know, how do you accommodate that? It's going to be important. That's what I was saying. That it's really important that all the groups um, that will be impacted, and I say it'll be if there is a new United Ireland coming, you know, and the debate hasn't even begun. We have no idea what it would look like. Right. I, mean, I mean, Andre touched upon it then, you know, uh, Mayor Martin, I think. Deal with. I mean, I think. I mean, I'm not being unkind to him. I, I you know, personally, I do like him, but I just think it is it is not his priority at the minute. But there's so many issues that have to be. Asked. I mean, I wrote down. Remember, about three months ago, I wrote down. I I ended up with 77. That and I could add to that now. Once you start this debate, if it ever, if the secretary did ever come, there will be hundreds of questions I haven't even thought of. And coming back to your question. That's what's going to push it in. A citizens' assembly is not going to do it because a citizens' assembly is a technical institutional vehicle which you know looks at you know pros and what you'll be talking about is hundreds of groups working separately, sometimes working together, and yeah. extraordinarily, unionists will find friends across mm -hmm. the border, <laughs> which will come as a huge surprise. And maybe they should have looked for them, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But this notion that you know you can just here here's a border poll that's happening on the twentieth of you know February twenty thirty um whatever it's, it's all over it doesn't work like that at all you know the debate has to happen and that again please God please God and I say that as an atheist please God we do not end up in a situation where it goes on and on and on for a few years and since somebody goes oh let's have the border poll when the mm. debate hasn't been had and all the people who need to be talked to when all the government and even the, the financial side of it you know this notion of I remember one leading Sinn Féin said to me um, and I was down at the Dublin Mansion House a couple of years ago as their guest speaker um, of quite a lot of silence when I finished uh, but you know one of, the, one of the points I said to one of them afterwards about the financial thing and he just Oh, us hundreds of millions in reparations. That has to be part of the deal. I remember thinking, good luck with that, mate. Good luck with that. You have to have something more extensive than that as part of your what the financial future of United Ireland would look like. And Andre, what I mean, how, how do we start? You know, unpacking some of these seventy-seven and more questions, uh, and, and in such a way as you said, you know, that can actually incorporate that range of identities. I always remember the late Davy Irvine saying, you know, 
don't be so silly. And Davy says, well, what are you? You know. So, you know, I, I, will some of these other, you know, approaches actually help start answering some of these questions? Seems to me that um, they will happen anyway. And why wouldn't we have more rather than less? So, you know, um, for me, the, the first thing and the last thing that people, when they're talking about a changed arrangement, is health. That's what they talk about. They talk about the National Health Service free at the point of entry versus the kind of hybrid model that's in the South. And then, you know, they, that becomes a really concerted um, conversation, but it's also, often without enough detail. And the opportunity of us exploring this and having time to do it is actually to come up with something much better that works better on the entire island. Um, you know, because we recognise that we have um, two systems that are creaking under demand and lack of resources at the minute. So this gives us an opportunity to have an Hopefully we won't have ministers describing their ministry as Angola going forward. Or even we have, you know, the opportunity for, you know, we saw that the two states meant that the repression of women was absolute on both sides of the border. And there was a violence against women and children that was institutionalized. And um, so it isn't just that we will go forward knowing that that hasn't, that that won't be the case. It will be a real case of ensuring that those rights are inbuilt. We can find relationships and understandings with each other, much as what Alex said there, in a new way. So it won't be about which flag I, I fly in July or at Easter. It's going to be about those experiences and issues that we have in common and that we can build something that is much stronger together. In terms of having the, and I think Alex is absolutely right to raise all of those issues about how does that feel for a unionist, despite being, you know, this sizable minority, every so often it needs to be something that people really can say no I am cherished mm -hmm. and, and you know that is going to require a long conversation and a big leap in understanding from where I'm sitting to where Alex is sitting you know we we need to, a lot deeper conversations and why wouldn't we have that because mm -hmm. it seems to me that we coexist in places where we will find the easy things to talk about, but we avoid the hard things to talk about. And if we do this properly, and we do this with, with what the end result is from the poll, we will be all the richer for it. Sure, sure. Well, I'm conscious of our time. Um, so, and I'm, I'm also conscious actually, there's a couple of questions in the chat um, function. But um, I, I think to just to take some of this discussion forward, I'm going to hand over to Catherine, um, who's going to introduce the, the, the next session of, of our webinar. Catherine, can you unmute? I think you're still muted. Thank and you, can I... Ella. Yeah. Okay, Catherine. Thanks, and to echo your thanks. Thanks, Andre and Alex. So for very rich contributions. And um, so my name is Catherine O'Rourke, I'm director of the Transitional Justice Institute. And um, in this part of the session, we're going to have a few short contributions from uh, TJI colleagues on the theme of the report. Um, so it falls to me just to open up um, with a few comments really on uh, broader TJI work that addresses this uh, specific theme around designing, potential design of a referendum on a, a border poll. Um, I was fortunate enough to attend the conference um, in February and I want to thank uh, Alice and Rory for, for all of their efforts. 
Um, obviously, this is a debate that has gathered um, a great deal of traction in recent times, um, as has come out certainly from um, the comments today. Um, but as I was reflecting on my uh, comments, I was thinking about um, in 2005, I wasn't, I had joined the Institute as Christine Bell's research assistant, and she was working on a small project. Um, a legal a legal inquiry into sort of how might one go about uniting Ireland. And uh, one of my fun sort of tasks was to phone around the political parties in Dublin to ask them what their plans were for uniting Ireland. And um, the responses I got sort of gener were generally of a theme, well, we'd welcome it and, the, and we'll get back to you. Um, and uh, they, needless to say, they didn't get back to me with very elaborated uh, ideas. So I think that does sort of say, certainly for me at least, it sort of brought out just how far we've travelled in, in the fact that uh, whilst this is a new perspective and a, a new point in this debate, uh, discussions around um, Northern Ireland's constitutional status, uh, the constitutional status of the peace agreement, um, our constitutional futures um, have been pretty central to the work of the TJI since it since it's uh, started. And um, I do think there's a few things that we brought to this debate sort of in the broad trajectory of the work um, that also comes through in, in very strongly in the report, which I commend to you. Um, Certainly there's a comparative on how um, the a referendum could possibly be designed. And um, looking comparatively, uh, particularly at the Belfast Agreement as a peace agreement, um, we do see that the provision for constitutional referenda uh, are, is not entirely unusual. Uh, one could think of Sudan, South Sudan, and their peace agreement. Um, you know, there are several uh, examples of places where that happens too and it can sometimes be helpful to take the heat out of a local debate by sort of pointing out that these then uh, that that is something that the TJI has really tried to bring to this discussion and continues to. Um, we've also quite a lot of work ongoing for a long time now on the, around the Bill of Rights, the discussion of the Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland and indeed the All-Ireland Charter of Rights and it does strike me that this might be potentially be more prominent in the in the discussion because the discussion about the old island charter of rights is also about the discussion of a, a set of values that um underpins the the island um on and that discussion and process around um shared values um, the experience, and my colleague Anne Smith in particular, Leo Green, have done really good work on this. Um, the experience of that All Island Charter process to date has sort of said that it's been too top down, it hasn't been in sufficiently inclusive, and it hasn't been accompanied by political priority. Um, so it seems to me there's already learning kind of going on there, and my, and my colleagues continue to, to do important work on, on that question. And Draw attention to something that's come out already but it is around the question of inclusion and sort of who gets to be included in these debates and the question of inclusion cuts in a few different ways um, but in particular I think our work on gender has um, stands to contribute quite a lot to this debate in ways that potentially offer ways forward but also I think in ways that complicate the discussion um, so and I don't want to I don't want to cut across Fidelma's contribution here too much but just to say a few things that have I think come out um, in other work that we've done. Example, things like um, differential legal recognition of gender identity, um, differential access to rights of citizenship for same-sex families, um, 
our, mas our work on masculinities and how relationships between men tend to really structure much of these debates, um, even where there is rhetorical reference to, to women's inclusion. Um, Eilish and others longstanding work on intersectionality and I have to say that really came to mind for Alex's contribution. Uh, I, I suppose I wouldn't assume that one's uh, national identity would be the primary uh, element of this discussion were it to happen. I think there may be other axes of identity that are pertinent and relevant. Um, and inclusion also, I suppose, around the, the construction of expertise in this debate. Um, and this is a particular challenge and I suppose opportunity for those of us in the academy. Um, at, one, at one level, our, the, the role we offer is expertise. I think the value we offer is a certain degree of legal expertise, comparative expertise, international expertise. Um, but there's also the danger of excluding people by making um, these conversations overly expertly laden. And also, I think the, the real danger of defining expertise in ways that are exclusionary, um, uh, which is a constant, I think, challenge and risk for us in the academy. But um, I do... Um, I, I do hope that the TJI's kind of longstanding commitment to, uh, to, to do. And also, I think, to working, um, working collaboratively with folks outside the academy um, is, is evident in our work today and evident in sort of how we're trying to take this debate forward. Um, and I do hope that the TJI can continue uh, to be a space to sort of facilitate and enable these debates going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Um, and Catherine has laid out um, very clearly um, you know, what our thinking was behind holding this workshop uh, and how it fits into the role of the uh, university and academia in uh, the society. Um, Thanks also to Alex and Andre for really stimulating thoughtful uh, discussion this morning. Uh, it was, uh, you know, an honor to listen to uh, that level of insight um, and that very honest and open discussion uh, on these really big issues. Uh, so uh, I just would like to thank them all. And of course, thanks Avila. Avila has had to go to another meeting that she could not um, avoid, uh, but thanks to her for her very able sharing this morning. Uh, I, I have to confess I'm not as far-sighted as Christine Bell or Catherine O'Rourke uh, in that it was not particularly on my radar uh, to think about these issues uh, in 2005, I think Catherine said, or even even in 2015, sorry, even in 2015, um, what of course changes uh, everything, um, many things is Brexit uh, uh, and the decision in the um, referendum of the 23rd of June 2016, uh, which opens up all these issues of uh, borders, sovereignty, identity, um, that the Good Friday Agreement or Belfast Agreement had found um, very nuanced, uh, very careful compromises or solutions for, for a while. Uh, but it was clear to everyone, I think, uh, as soon as the Brexit referendum 
passed, uh, that this was a debate where we urgently needed to start thinking uh, and getting prepared uh, because it is complex uh, and uh, contentious. Uh, so it was with that spirit that we endeavored to think about what are the comparative, what are the international lessons that we can learn. Uh, and so we gathered together um, experts from different disciplines uh, across these islands uh, to contribute. And we've produced this report which I think makes an excellent addition to anyone's coffee table. Uh, it's available as a free download, uh, so please do uh, make sure to take a look and um, look through it. Uh, and each of the presentations by our contributors is, even though the report itself is substantial enough, each presentation is relatively brief and uh, full of insights, so I hope people will uh, make use of them going forward. Um, I mentioned Brexit. I, I think one of, well, two of the lessons of Brexit are that quite important, uh, seismically important issues can come onto the agenda very quickly in the sense that the UK's exit from the European Union uh, in 2010 or even in 2015 was largely a debate within one political party uh, rather than a massive um, you know, public debate. And um, you know, people sometimes tell me when I have these conversations, uh, you know, I don't think the South or the Dublin government um, would really want this, uh, which is what Catherine was also alluding to, uh, I think, in a slightly different way with her experience. Um, but the other lesson, of course, is that governments and prime ministers don't get the results that they anticipate. David Cameron certainly did not anticipate the result of the Brexit referendum. And so that means uh, it is important uh, for those of us working in academia and elsewhere in the public sphere uh, to think about these issues um, and to prepare for these issues. Uh, whatever whatever one's view on the ultimate substantive question. Uh, so it's with that spirit uh, that we produce this report and um, will continue to engage on these questions in the future. But I'm now going to hand you over to my co-organizer, Ailey Sharuni, uh, to say a bit more uh, about the project and other projects ongoing. So, Ailey. Thanks very much, Rory, and thanks everyone for your contributions. It feels like it leaves me with very little more to say, but not being one to miss the opportunity. Let me begin by just a, a reflection I had whenever I looked at the report actually this morning. And like Rory and everyone who's spoken so far, I it captures not only the expertise that's presented, but it captures the engagement and the conversation that went on in the room. The questions and answers and I think they're as valuable as anything else in the report so I would really recommend please have a look at it but the phrase that came to mind this morning whenever I looked over it was unimagined futures we held that workshop in February of this year none of us could have imagined where 
This was pre-COVID times and it feels like the world we live in has changed almost utterly since then. And what we've, if I can pull out two things that we've learned and I'm not going to discuss them, just simply state them very obviously. One is the capacity and significance and importance of governance to manage crisis situations. There have been years in discussing constitutional issues, what does it matter? Uh, that phrase, you can't eat flags for breakfast, came across from some well-meaning and liberal circle that constitutional matters weren't bread and butter matters. And what we've learned from the experience of COVID is that actually governance and state capacities and the rules and regulations under which states operate are critically important. And I'm just picking up on some of the learned, well, I suppose was that the crucial importance and vitality of local civil society organizations. If you live in a state in urban Belfast or Derry, you will know what I'm talking about because local people at a local level, women's groups, community organizations, ex-prisoner groups got together and organized themselves in response to the local crisis of COVID. Of the connections between national structures, governance and how that happens and what happens locally. And sometimes I think it's good to take heart from what happens locally. And I'm thinking particularly of Alex's point about there being hundreds of conversations going on. Conversations are going on all the time between communities and interface areas on various issues of common interest between people. And sometimes we forget that. And within academic circles, sometimes we never notice. That's been a particular interest of my own in relation to this conversation. How people are empowered to have the conversations that are necessary at local levels. So COVID was a, has made a huge difference to our lives, but Brexit continues. And when I think back to February, we had certain expectations going on at the time and you'll, it comes through in people's um, presentations, what they expected to happen uh, at Brexit at that time. You know, the conversation in unimagined ways also. You know, what's happened to the protocol? What's going to be the outcome next week? We don't know and we live in that kind of uncertainty that's difficult to live within. The report makes a contribution to that. And I suppose lastly, what I want to say is, who could have imagined that a conversation on Irish unity would be simultaneously a European pluralism? That was unimaginable. And it's what we're talking about at the moment as well because the referendums that we're envisaging, however far in the future, is a means of return to the European Union, to European pluralism. So the conversation isn't so much as sometimes has been alleged about narrow notions of unionist national, but we're opening up 
the European universalism debate into this conversation. And that even back in February wasn't something that was clearly seen or clearly imagined. I'd like to end by encouraging people who are involved in this debate here and listening in to carry out conversations and to keep an eye on the constitutional conversations groups invitations to hand over to my dear colleague Fidelma who's going to join us and basically have the last word <laughs> over to you. Thank you, Thank you very much, Eilish, uh, and that was a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Um, and thanks to Rory and Eilish for um, inviting me into these conversations. Um, and Dave and support as well. So um, that is inclusion. Up in the top right hand corner, Rory. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm interested in uh, looking at the gender dimensions of the constitutional debates um, that we're having at the moment. And I'm working with Eilish on We received much needed uh, and very appreciated funding from the Joseph Browntree Charitable Trust to support that work. Um, so I just speak from my own sort of perspective on the work that we're doing. Um, although obviously Eilish and I um, share a lot of similar interests. Um, so the framework of pluralism. Uh, just to outline why pluralism is important uh, for me, um, pluralism and a pluralist approach to constitutional change pushes us away from just simply looking at processes such as the border fall, which no doubt is exceptionally important, and towards thinking about our emerging and what kind of values underpin those visions. Um, so for me, a pluralist approach uh, opens up those questions. Now, Andre already alluded to uh, sort of a particular kind of vision when she was talking and I tried to write it down, but I didn't get it written down correctly. So I didn't get the end bit right. But she asked, how do we build a new identity of dignity? I can't remember what the exact words were. So for me, that, that actually is a, a pluralist vision uh, emerging there. Um, now, if we can think about more broadly how much room there is for pluralism in our current conversations, um, that might illustrate why you know I'm so interested in this framework. Um, the ground 
for pluralism and pluralist politics was, was pretty narrow. And for somebody like me, it's really interesting to hear the conversations and comments that are happening now, because I'm hearing the same things that we heard back in 1998. So, um, you know, some commentators have argued, I'm not arguing, I'm just saying some commentators have argued that ethno-nationalist bargaining, and that really has shaped our politics um, since that we still have this sort of bargaining, we still have these tensions there. So there wasn't much room really for pluralism there. And, you know, we were told, well, that's not the issue. Nobody's really interested in identities like women. Um, you know, we'll sort that out later on. You know, a little bit more positively. Oh, well, once we get this in place, then we'll sort out all those other rights. After that, just be patient, just wait. And those institutions that could have supported pluralism, such as um, a Bill of Rights and the civic form, um, they fell apart on us. And it always makes me smile when people say, well, the civic form was completely ineffectual, Fidelma. <laughs> you know, institutions like the civic form were going to have to be allowed to develop and strengthen and, 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 and you know, become reshaped as, as time went on. So what we ended up with, we ended up with pluralist politics all those struggles around gender, sexuality and, and class, moving to the margins. Um, and we have very long uh, and difficult campaigns for what are being address. So I don't want to talk too long, so you better start sort of giving me signs. Um, so what space is there for pluralism at the minute? Well, we've just had a lovely conversation between people of two opposing perspectives. But unfortunately, um, all of our conversations are not of that nature. So my first worry and pluralist perspectives coming into these conversations because to some degree, we have a a masculinized space for debate. And what I mean by that is not that that space is populated by men. It's not because Rory O'Connell is in that space. Rather, I'm talking about a masculinist approach to politics. ...into enemy and friend, and then crush your enemy, okay? Now, as a colleague recently noticed, this whole space has become weaponized. So that's, you know, that's one concern for those of us interested in pluralist politics. Um, you know, how do we, how do we promote pluralism in that space? Well, Gaelish and I want to from Joseph Roundfee Charitable Trust is helping us do that. Um, because we're going to explore 
how spaces can be created um, to enable women uh, to speak about these issues. And when you are uh, speaking to women and having conversations between women, they have cross-cutting identities. So you're also creating a space for other uh, identities to speak. Where you can talk about economic um, and social issues as well. So you can include them in the conversation. So we're at the very beginning of that work, at the very beginning. Um, but we're, we're excited about it. I think I speak for both of us when I say we're excited about it. And um, what I want to do as part of this Constitutional Futures Initiative, which has been really important for me because normally I just go off and work on my own. Um, it's been really important for me because it's made me realize that I need to strengthen my arguments, lower a pluralist approach to constitutional conversations, to make them more robust and to make them more convincing. Because I don't believe in the current form they're in. I am actually really convincing anybody of the value of pluralism and the right, the, the value of inclusion and that you need to make that a part of your process. You can't have a laundry list at the end of that process where you say, okay, we'll give you a couple of sort of basic human rights here that probably won't be particularly meaningful in the real world. You know, you have to bring all constituencies into these conversations. That's it. Thank you, Sedelma. Um, uh, so we're moving towards the end of our session. Um, one of our speakers from the workshop in February, uh, Professor Etho Donahue, uh, is joining us. Um, and Etho, would you like to uh, say a few words on? workshop or the debate we've been having this morning. Um, good morning, everybody. And thank you very much, Rory, for asking me. I very much appreciate it. And, and it is lovely to, to see people again. Um, as as Eilish said, February does seem such like such a long time ago um, now. Um, and I really enjoyed going back and, and reading the report. And thank you for putting it to both of you for putting it together and putting the work in. I think this is exactly the kind of work we needed to we need to all be doing and reflecting on. Um, the, the one thing I'd like to add, I suppose, to it would be, is that I think one of the, and it's kind of come up with the, the shared island approach and the approach from the, from the Republic, but also I think from Britain, is that there is, I think, an underappreciation of what change will require of both states. And I think it will lead to a change to the Republic's idea of itself, edges. They're, I think people sometimes get a bit obsessed about particular words, like the word Taoiseach or something like that. Like that's something that, you know, that's the change, when actually the change would need to be a lot more fundamental than that. Um, but also Britain, it will, it will require Britain to rethink what Britain is. And also if there's a referendum, and I think correct to what Alex said, if both governments do decide to get involved, whatever governments those are at that particular moment in time, of course, 
they will have to sell, I think, a positive vision of, of Brexit. And from the British perspective, was that it didn't sell what the positive of the union, you know, the, the positive sides of it, as opposed to just saying we're stronger together, which because, of course, when you're talking about independence or moving with Scottish independence referendum or you're talking about Brexit, that didn't quite make sense in the context of something that is a United Kingdom. But also, I think it, it doesn't necessarily make context when you're talking about a bit joining another bit. So I think there needs to be a really, uh, I think, a positive understanding of unionism, not just from a Northern Ireland perspective, but from a, a British wide perspective, what beyond stronger together, beyond the sort of for the everyday person, why is it positive? But also from the Republic's perspective, I think often the referendums, the Republic tend to get captured by expertise, including us lawyers, um, and I think maybe too much by the law, um, and around sort of trying to fix the bits of the past when actually this is a, a, a it could be what we would like to be to talk about the issues that Fidelma mentioned. I think very much in the Republic, the focus the narrowness of the focus tends to be on fiddling around the edges and doing enough to make the unionist community feel better about the prospect rather than creating an Ireland where maybe unionism would like to be, where it would be happy, where it would, could feel that it is a really positive part of the community as opposed to sort of a characterization of unionism as only I'm kind of obsessed with that kind of thing, as opposed to, I think, both polities need to think about what they would be selling in a really positive way, rather than, than skirting around, around the edges. But thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity to speak as well. But um, I really thank you to the TGI for starting, I think, a really positive conversation around this, a really a, a one that is bringing in lots of perspectives. And I do think that's really, really important. So thank you. Thank you, Issa, and you join us. Um, Alex, Andre, would either of you like to say a last reflection um, before I close? Um, can I have one? Sorry, I've got a bunch of you still here. No, just to say, the, um, just to the, the, Aoife's point, the, the, I think it was a, a very important point, which I hadn't really thought about before in this debate. Um, if, if we do have a border pool referendum, wherever it is, um, whichever governments are in power, I'd say it's going to depend on some unionists. If, it, if it's to be a United Ireland, it's going to depend on some unionists shifting over towards that side. And if it's going to re remain in the status quo, it'll probably depend on some soft nationalism shifting into the UK camp. I'm just wondering who will sell? I mean, who sells the union? Who sells the United Kingdom? The nationalists who sells uh, United Ireland to unionists? Because I mean, to be honest, I'm just thinking if, if someone like you know if, if Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nigel Farage, you know, were to turn up promoting, you know, the the union. I mean, a bit like having Burke and Herod a baptism or something like that. It's just going to really put people off. So I think again in this whole full-scale debate of how you win hearts and minds on the other side, because we both say unionists and nationalists have to win the maximize the vote on their own side, but to secure victory. They have to bring 10, 15 percent. How do you do that? That we haven't discussed that this morning. And indeed, it, it's nothing. It's a debate I don't really hear because in the same way, I remember saying at the the Mansion House thing with Sinn Fein. I said in terms of if there was a border poll, you in terms of you being Sinn Fein in the background, so on, you are the very worst people to try and sell a United Ireland to unionism. 
and vice versa. You know, someone like Boris Johnson is probably the very worst person you can think of to sell the United Kingdom to soft nationalism. So it's just a little element of the debate there that I hadn't, um, but at least three columns worth there. So thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Andre, would you like to say last words? Um, I think that this has been a really positive conversation, plenty for me as someone who's engaged in the conversation a lot to think about, not least Catherine O'Rourke's point about multiple identities and cross-secting identities and how important that is and recognising that from the get-go. There's also something that kind of sits that... Uh, when we're having a measured and, and delightful conversation like this, that we also know that it isn't like this all the time. Yeah. So we put on our radios early in the morning and we know that um, what can trigger us does get triggered and that the conversation can become quite unhealthy as a society that's come out of a 30 year conflict where we're victims of, of multiple traumas and complex traumas um, even if we haven't experienced particular harms, we could still carry trauma. And I think that we need to accommodate and, appre and appreciate that our conversations need to always not roll from, from a, almost an addiction to crisis. And this becomes another crisis moment that we, that we do kind of bring the tone down, that we do engage in a way that is empowering that acknowledges each other and acknowledges that we may well carry some really awful harms and they can be multiple and from different areas, not just conflict harms, but other areas too. But we will all bring those to the conversation, but we can do it in a way that becomes progressive and becomes healthy and actually contributes to healing. Thank you, Andre. Um, so thanks again to Andre, Alex, Nabla, and my my colleagues in TJI and Tifa who joined us uh, last uh, while. Um, conversation, dialogue, deliberation are common words we used a lot. Um, conversations will continue. Um, there is a group uh, led by University College London looking at issues around a unity referendum uh, and includes uh, People like our Deputy Vice Chancellor, Kathy Gordon-Lehean, and uh, Professor Kristen Crennan, and Katie Hayward uh, in Queen's University of Belfast, and uh, many other um, experts in the field. Uh, they are launching a report uh, of their findings on the 26th of November. Um, they will be having a launch event um, that uh, TGI will be co-hosting on the 10th of December. Uh, so, uh, do watch the space for those details to be confirmed. I know we had some questions on the chat box that we haven't been able to address uh, as we had a fairly full agenda. Uh, but as I say, these conversations uh, will continue. And um, I'm pleased, and if Catherine will permit me, TGI is pleased to be a part of uh, these conversations going forward. Uh, so thank you for a really fascinating morning uh, or afternoon or wherever you are. Uh, and do enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.